Um, tonight we're going to continue our discussion about Islam, but then I, I don't want to uh, take up the whole evening doing that because we have spent a fair bit of time doing that already. I really want to spend our time um, uh, focusing in on the Jehovah's Witnesses. And obviously most of us have met or had conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses. So in order, for, in order for us to have intelligent conversations with them, it's kind of important that we know what they believe and what we believe and where we agree and where we disagree and then we're able to have more intelligent uh, conversation with them. Uh, I am curious if any of you have had any exciting conversations lately with non-Christians. And if so, how it went. Just Wendy with Mike, you're saying? Okay. Okay. Just the two of you? You with her or her with you? Okay. Dela. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. I'm so thankful that I have the tools to 
Good. Good. It's always fun to be to be able to be with someone for an extended period of time and share with them in that kind of a context, whether it's someone you see once a week on average or you're with them for an entire week. It's it's so much better than the cold turkey. I mean, sometimes the cold turkey is all you got, but the cold turkey experiences can be uh, more intimidating. You feel more rushed. You sort of want to seal the deal all at once, whereas when you have a little more time with people, it's, it's just a little more real, right? So, very good. Anyone else? Yeah? You never know, just planting the seed. You know, the Bible talks about planting the seed. Another person comes along, waters it. Another person sees it grow. And that can happen in a lifetime. It could happen in a series of generations. You know, some of the ministry that our church does, just this local church, may not actually bear fruit for 100 years. I know that sounds kind of strange, but you just never know. You could be ministering to someone who, uh, you know, considers a certain aspect of Christianity, and maybe they... They don't become a believer, but that's somehow passed on to their children and their children, and it, the, the, the seed is sort of doesn't come to life for a few generations. You just never know what kind of a footprint you'll leave. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, sometimes in our rushed society, we also want to rush the task of evangelism and apologetics. And if, if we learn anything in this class, hopefully we learn that the pressure's off. The pressure's off us. We don't convert, but we do need to be faithful to the task, and we do need to be good farmers, planting the seed, watering, and, and praying for increase, of course. So that's good. Thanks, Don. I appreciate that. I take a single cream. <laughs> Where, you didn't get the roll. Oh, you did get the roll at the rims. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody wins anything sizable, we do have a building fund you can trade your <laughs> tag in for. <laughs> I'd encourage you to play the 649 <laughs> prayerfully. Okay. Anything short of sin to get the money in, right? Okay, what we're going to look at tonight is a little bit more about the Quran. I know we've, we've looked at the Quran and we've looked at some of the dissimilarities between the Quran and the Bible. I just want to introduce you to some more and um, and then... And then we want to talk about 
a question I know Dale asked three weeks ago about jihad. We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about a very interesting doctrine within within uh, Islam called taqiyah. Maybe you've heard of that before, but it relates to truth-telling or lack thereof. And it's kind of an important thing to be aware of. Now, my heading says how the Quran contradicts the Bible. I should probably be a little more specific. Contradict might be too strong of a word at some points. So this is both how the Bible contradicts, the, or the Quran contradicts the Bible, and how the Quran records things the Bible doesn't record, which may or may not be true, right? Because uh, we shouldn't have the assumption that everything that's ever happened in Jesus' life or ministry wound up in the Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us that it didn't, and that if, in fact, everything that Jesus said and did was recorded, it would fill up all the books of the libraries of the world. So it is possible that some of the stories or accounts that are recorded about Jesus or his ministry in extra-biblical books are, in fact, true. Obviously, they wouldn't be true if they contradicted something else Jesus said or did. And they may not be true because they may just be mythological and made up. But it's not impossible that there's truth outside of the Bible. We just can't verify it. So I just wanted to make that explanatory note at the beginning. So first of all, uh, you'll find it interesting when you're talking with with uh, Muslims, at least knowledgeable Muslims, that in, in theory, at least, they will affirm, in theory, that's a key word, they will affirm what we call the Bible, specifically three components of the Bible, the Torah, some of the prophetic books like Psalms, Proverbs, they would find some value in that, and what they would call the Injil, which we understand as the gospel. So they will, in theory, say, oh, we believe in those things. And that's a, when, a, when a Muslim says that, you know that they attended their own 242 mosque class, and they're trying to build a bridge with you. So, you know, be charitable with them when they're trying to build that bridge. So in Surah 447, it says, O ye people of the book. Now, Muslims and Christian interpret, Muslim interpreters and Christian interpreters of the Quran both agree this is a reference to what we would call the Christian or Hebrew scriptures. Believe in what we now have revealed, confirming what is already with you. So the point being there, and you could look up all those other surahs that I've, I've put in your, your notes, is that... Uh, the Quran, and therefore Islamic theology, does affirm the Torah and the Injil as uh, the words of God. Now, if you drive down Dominion, past the mosque, have any of you been by there the last week? What does it say in the sign? Okay, you get a free Quran. Well, what does it say about the Quran? Okay, the last, humanity's last revelation, last and final revelation, I think it says, and you can come and get a copy. So the, the, the idea, this, to, to make it sort of simple, the idea in, in Islam, and this is important for you to understand, is that God did speak before Muhammad showed up. God spoke through who? Moses. So he spoke through Moses. Daniel. Jesus, okay, etc., a whole string of people, more than these, and Muhammad. So, this guy gets some revelation, this guy gets some revelation, this guy gets some revelation, and this guy gets some revelation, and this is when God closes his mouth, and he's done. 
giving revelation, special revelation to humanity. So if, if you sort of draw a line in history where Christians and Muslims agree is that at some point God stopped delivering special written revelation to humanity. We happen to date it shortly after the cross and they date it 600 years later. So we both agree that at some point there's a final prophet or series of prophets that have come to humanity. It's just that we disagree as to when it stopped. So Muslims then would say, in theory, the revelations that these men got from God or Allah were truthful. But Muslims always then, when you start to get into a conversation, will say to you, but yours has been changed. Now, the weight of responsibility is upon them to validate that accusation. And as an apologetic tip, I would encourage you to press Muslims to validate that accusation. So at least to go back, at least minimally, a few hundred years before Muhammad, and say, we want you to find somewhere in antiquity any biblical book that looks different then than it does now. So the weight is on you. Go find it. And you should press them. This is a classic thing that we get among people who are not in favor of Christianity. So on a more simplistic level, let's say this is actually a New Testament, but let's just say it's the whole Bible. You'll have people say, the Bible's been changed. How many of you have had a friend, a colleague, a coworker, a family member say that? The Bible's been changed. We probably all have, really, or heard it on TV or read it in some article. And, I mean, the simplest apologetic response is to pick one up and say, well, show me where. Show me where. And, of course, 99.999% of people will say, well, uh, you know, uh, 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 um, uh. and even the 0.1% that will still hold to that, they have no proof. Because the reality is, okay, if I wasn't a Christian but I was knowledgeable of human history, it would be better for me to say, well, I just don't believe what the Bible says than to say the Bible's been changed. See, because for me to say, well, I don't believe what the Bible says is at least to be intellectually honest to the fact that history of the Bible is accurate and clear. But for me to say, no, it's been changed, that's just not true. The, 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 the evidence is not there for that. So if you even bumped into like a knowledgeable secular, atheistic, Hebrew scholar, Assyrian scholar, Aramaic scholar who just dabbled in ancient literature, they wouldn't tell you the Bible's been changed because it hasn't been. It's just not, it's not factual. So I stress that, and you need to stress it back to people, this, this whole common popular line, the Bible's been changed, it's not true. Now, obviously, uh, people will then, who are very simple thinkers, will say, well, I have an NIV and I have a King James and they're different. Well, duh, that's a translation. Like if I found a, uh, you know, any, any book that's been translated, let's say there's a book translated from English into Spanish in 1754, and then it's translated from English into Spanish in 1998. Spanish has changed. 
the, the lingo has changed in 200 years. Obviously, the trans, translations are, are somewhat different in terms of the lingo. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Greek and Hebrew texts. This is a Greek Bible. I want to show you something out of that later on. This is a Greek Bible. And the Greek that you would read here is the Greek that some first century Christian would have been reading. This is it. It's not been changed. So for a Muslim to say, for instance, just to set up a little timeline, let's say uh, this right here represents the time of Christ, right here. So this is first century. The New Testament's been completed. And let's just say that this period of time is 600 years later, representing the time of Muhammad. If Muhammad, writing at this point in history, says that book is true, Fast forward 1,400 years, you're talking to a Muslim today that says, well, Muhammad said it was true, but it's no longer true. Well, all they got to do, all you got to do is go back and show them something that was written before Muhammad, compare it with what we have today and say it's not been changed. So the onus is on you. The, the Muslim needs to uh, defend for him or herself why their Quranic book says, the Injil and the Torah is true, but they don't obey it or live by it today. The onus is on them, not on you. The onus is on them to validate their accusation. So you can look up some of these surahs, and if you had some time with a Muslim, you could sit down and read them and say, why do you not follow the teachings of Jesus? So you don't even have to pick, pick on Muhammad. You can just ask them, why don't you follow the teachings of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. Joy? Uh, Greek has changed, but this is not modern Greek. This is ancient Greek, right? So specifically, it's one of three kinds of Greek. It's called Koine Greek. So when someone makes an... when The point being is if somebody... Uh, comes to you and gives you a historical argument to try to disprove your faith. Says, well, the Bible has been changed. Well, then they, it, the onus is on them to be knowledgeable enough to prove that claim or disprove that claim. Especially when it's about your faith. They're saying your, your book has changed over 2,000 years. And you can say, well, then prove it. Like, if you really want to be scholarly, go and read a, new, a Greek New Testament. Compare that to the Greek New Testaments that are sitting on our shelves today, and, and it's basically a, a more or less a photocopy of it, right? So the onus is on them. However, uh, if you just want to look at translations, and you wanted to even go back heck, 500 years and pick a language, English, and find one of the very first uh, copies of the English Bible and compare that with the English Bible today, obviously you're going to have an upgrading of language yees and thous and these but there's no there's no substantive changes even in the translations so the point being is if so if i say to you well what socrates wrote is not what we have of socrates today well the onus is on me to validate that allegation and if someone then says well actually this is the original copy of socrates's work and i'm like well i don't read greek well then don't make those kind of claims and if you're going to make those kind of claims, the onus is on you to prove it. So 
it's, it's this conversation worth having, and I've had that conversation with um, many different Muslims. Now, here's some Bible-slash-Quranic content issues. So there's some differences between the Quranic records and the biblical records. Here's just a few examples. The story of Cain and Abel. After Cain killed his brother Abel, the Quran says that God sent a raven who scratched the ground to show him how to hide the shame of his brother. Now, this is maybe one of those situations that's not so much of a contradiction, but the question would be where would the source material be for that account? Because it's certainly not included in any ancient uh, books. And one would also need to ask the question, I guess on a theological level, what would what does that mean? How is he hiding the shame of his brother? And why would God encourage him to hide the shame of his brother, presumably by covering up the blood or something like that? It doesn't seem to be within the character of God, if in fact that's what the surah is claiming. Then there's the story of Noah and the flood. In Quran, uh, surah 11, 42 and 43, it says that one of the sons of Noah refused to go in the, the ark and drown in the flood. Well, the Bible says that all three sons of Noah went into the ark with him and were saved from the flood. And in fact, were the three fathers of the nations that uh, the three major race groups on earth that came out of that. Now, unless Noah had a fourth son, which the Bible just chooses not to record, there's a discrepancy there between the biblical record and the Quranic record. In Surah 11.44, the Quran says that the ark came to rest on the top of a mount called Judai, while the Bible says it came to rest on uh, a mount known in that day at least as Ararat. And of course, there's a lot of debates among uh, archaeologists as to what that mountain is. It could be two different names for the same place, but at least uh, on the surface, there seems to be somewhat of a discrepancy. There's also a number of differences between the Quranic accounts of Abraham's life and biblical accounts. Now, as we go through some of these, you'll probably put two and two together and you'll understand why Muhammad recorded things somewhat differently than the way the Bible records things. So here's some examples. Abraham's father, according to the Quran, is Uzar. Well, the Bible says that his name was Terah. The Quran said Abraham had two sons. The Bible says uh, there were eight. Now, most Christians are like, eight? I don't remember there being eight. Well, you got to remember that he later remarried and had a series of more sons by Keturah, and they were sent off to the east. And the Quran doesn't record that. But again, it might just be an omission. The Quran, here's a drastic difference. The Quran says that Abraham lived in the valley of Mecca. Well, the Bible says he lived in Hebron and other places in what, what is now known as Israel. Uh, in the Quran, Abraham, this is a huge one, sacrificed Ishmael. Well, the Bible says it was Isaac. Now, that is one of the most critical distinctions between Christianity and Islam. Keep in mind, keep in mind, when, when did Abraham uh, live? Anybody know? Roughly speaking. How many centuries before Christ? About 2,000. About 2,000 years before Christ is when Moses was, or Abraham was alive. Moses, about 1,400, 1,500 or so. 
So about 2,000 years before Christ, we have uh, Abraham on earth. There's probably uh, in and around a couple of million people that would have been populating the planet at the time if you use ratios of about one couple producing four families. And um, Abraham, of course, keep in mind, I don't know if you ever met him or not, but Abraham would have had access to the sons of Noah. It's kind of cool to think about that. That uh, uh, Shem outlived Abraham. So Abraham was born about 200 years after the flood, lived for 175 years. Shem, I think, lived to, what, 600 or something like that, or 500. So he was, he was actually alive after Abraham was. In fact, many people believe that Melchizedek was Shem. And the reason why uh, Abraham paid him homage is because he recognized his significance as his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and his role as one of the, the fathers of the earth at the time, right? So because these guys were living long lives, <clears throat> Abraham would have had would have had great access through oral tradition to people that could tell the stories about what life was like before the flood, after the flood. Abraham himself lived twice as long as any of us are probably going to live in this room. And so uh, even though he wasn't writing everything down, there was huge overlap in generations. It wasn't like in our generation where most of us probably have met two to three of our grandparents if you're really lucky, maybe you know, like, maybe one of your great-grandparents. I doubt there's anybody here that ever met their great-great-grandparents. But when people are living long lives and they're still having children at like 30, 40 years of age, and they're around for generations thereafter, the idea of oral tradition being uh, passed along and far more accurate uh, is certainly possible. I mean, the point being is that if anybody questioned the flood story, Abraham could have just said, well, go on over there and talk to Shem then. And he'll tell you all about it, right? For several hundreds of years afterwards. So um, these are interesting things. And the point being is that we have a whole history of people orally and in writing agreeing to certain historical episodes. And to the best of my knowledge, up till the time of Muhammad, there was no religious group or no individual, or no scholar, or no historian, at least that we know of, that believed that Abraham tried to offer anybody other than Isaac on the altar. So, for 2,600 years or so, the accounts were that it was a guy named Abraham and a guy named Isaac. And really, nobody was debating that. But come the time of Muhammad, suddenly this final revelation makes this radical change. And again, one would think that if the Quran is merely a, uh, a, a correction of everything that had gone wrong in previous revelations from God to humanity, that you would find something in antiquity, like at least one document, that would maybe talk about Abraham offering Ishmael on the altar. But the point is, literally, Abraham... Uh, uh, Muhammad is writing things about historical episodes that are recorded in the Bible that, uh, from a certain angle that no group that we know of before that ever held to. Trevor? No. 
No, but because they're descendants of Ishmael, Ishmael becomes the special son of promise. Yes. Not only that, but he's the son of promise. Isaac's not the son of promise because there's enmity between the Islamic peoples and the Jewish peoples. Jim? Jim? No, because the Semitic languages are related. So, like, if you if you look at Ar- Aramaic or Hebrew, those are really closely related. But even if you look at Phoenician language, Syrians, uh, Syriac, sorry, uh, or Assyrian languages, or uh, Hebrew, or Arabic, or those languages that sort of came to, to life in, in and around the Mediterranean basin, basin, there's a ton of, like, linguistic and what we call etymological overlap. The, the, the history of words, the roots of the words, even the, 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 some of the alphabets are related. So I don't think any reader of both Hebrew and Aramaic would say, well, we're just getting the word wrong. It's actually a different historical claim that's being made by, by the two, well, by Muslims vis-a-vis all the others who, has, who historically accepted that uh, that account, that, that event. So that's a significant one. And again, being that there's, uh, by definition, a <clears throat> uh, uh, a, a claim being made that the Bible's not recording it accurately, really the onus is on the Muslim to validate that claim in some historical way. The Bible says he has more. Yeah, the Quran. And again, that could just be an omission. They're just not recording the the later sons. But with with the Ishmael thing, my point being is that's a that's a clear contradiction, difference between the Bible and and uh, the Quran. The Quran said that Abraham had two wives. The Bible says he had three: Sarah, Hagar, and Keturah. Again, they might have been counting them differently, not not counting Keturah. They would have obviously counted Hagar because they're concerned with Ishmael. The Quran, this is another significant, the Quran says that Abraham built the Kaaba. The Bible has no record of that. So that, that place of worship in Mecca today that they go to, that, that's Abrahamic in its origin. And if you look at a map, Saudi Arabia is not exactly close to Israel, or even northern Egypt, where we do know, or Mesopotamia, where we know Abraham did live in the in the biblical records. Story of Moses. The Quran says that uh, uh, the one who adopted Moses was Pharaoh's wife. The Bible says it was his daughter. Uh, the Quran states that uh, Haman lived in Egypt during Moses' time, while the Bible says that Haman lived in Persia during uh, King Ashuarius' time in Esther 3. This is kind of also important to the whole story of Esther because the reason why Haman was all ticked off at the Jews is because he knew the Jews, the Jewish nation, had slaughtered his forefather. And if uh, he was living uh, really before the, the nation was formally formed under Moses' leadership, then, I mean, there weren't, the point was, is until Moses sort of rallied the people, there weren't, there wasn't really a Jewish nation going to war. They were in captivity for 400 years. Now, by the way, I don't think that 
Muhammad was out to necessarily modify and change what he was reading in the Bible, like just indiscriminately changing it from Pharaoh's wife to Pharaoh's daughter. Like, why, what would be the point? Really, it doesn't matter theologically, not really. But the, the simplest explanation is that he probably never had access to Scripture, or at least not all of the Scripture. Because a lot of the stuff that he seems to understand about Christianity is not, are not beliefs that any Christian group has even ever held. I'm talking to any Christian group. The classic example being that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. There's no Christian group that's ever taught that of any sort or stripe. So what probably happened is he's, he's essentially raised in a Bedouin nomadic culture. Uh, the Jews are still partially nomadic, and there's intermingling of trade and commerce. And so he probably grew up in a culture where he would have heard a lot of quote-unquote biblical accounts or episodes but because he never had a written record when he's writing the Quran, he is representing some of it properly, but he's also misrepresenting uh, other parts of it. The, the, the apologetic advantage that we have is that Christianity is older than, than Islam. Now, why is that an advantage? Because if the Quran came before the Christian documents... And the Bible is saying things different than the Quran as the newer record. Then we sort of need to give an explanation as to why we're recording history differently. But because Islam is 600 years post-Christianity, the onus, and again, I'm using this language a lot tonight, the onus is on the Muslim to say, why are you recording even pre-Christian history differently than everything that's led up to that? So you need to, the onus is on, the point is, is that the Bible doesn't talk about the Quran, but the Quran talks about the Bible. So because the Quran talks about the Bible wrongly at points, the, the onus is on the Muslim to explain why the Quran is recording things differently than the Bible. Again, even apart from the fact that we believe it's a sacred book, just as a historical record, why do these historical records differ from these historical records when these historical records are hundreds and some thousands of years older than these? Why the change of history? The onus is on them to explain that. So fortunately, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, you know, we believe in the Quran and this is what the Quran says and we misquote it. We don't have that problem because the Quran comes after. Um, the story of Mary. The Quran states that her brother was Aaron while the Bible says that Aaron lived 1,300 years before Mary. Uh, the Bible, or that she gave birth to Jesus under a palm tree, the Bible says it was in a stable. And again, I don't think these are of theological significance to Muslims, but the point being is they're recording history differently than the historical documents that came before them. That Jesus spoke and made miracles at the time he was a baby. Well, the Bible just doesn't talk about that. That Zacharias could not speak for three days, while the Bible says he could not speak until the child was born, or in and around nine months. So those are some differences between the historical and theological content of the Quran and the scriptures. Now, one of the other things that uh, 
you should be aware of is that Muslims will often appeal to the unique nature of the Quran as one of the validations for its revelatory nature. So they'll say, if you ever read it, it's just unbelievable. And uh, I've read it at least in English, and it's interesting. Uh, it's never stirred my soul. But that is one of the, maybe that's just my problem. The point being is that Muslims will often say that it's very unique. So they'll say things like, it's extremely eloquent. The, the, the Arabic in it is unlike anything else. Okay, well, let's just say, even though I've heard otherwise, I don't read Arabic. How do I know? Let's just say we're going to give you that one. It's absolutely unbelievably written. Then one needs to ask themselves the question logically, is something that is eloquent more true than something that is less eloquent? Is some, does eloquence prove its supernatural uh, inspiration? Now, as a Christian, you shouldn't be guilty of those kind of claims. You shouldn't say, you know what, if you read the Greek of Mark, you'll never be able to put it down. I mean, it's just unbelievable Greek. The point being, that's not true. It's just average, run-of-the-mill Greek. In fact, while it wasn't all that common for people to be writing in this style at the time, the classical Greek of the Hellenistic period was far more beautiful of a language and sophisticated of a language than the Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in. Now, I, I just think personally, just as an aside, that's because God wanted to speak in the language of the common person. But we shouldn't go to the Greek and say, oh, if you read the Greek of the New Testament, it is just oh, blow your mind. Okay. Well, even if it does, it doesn't prove that it's supernaturally inspired. Like if you write uh, an essay at school and it's full of lies, but it's really eloquently written, if you have an intelligent teacher, you're not going to get a better grade because you have better grammar, but you wrote falsehoods. What about grammatical errors in the Quran? Uh, again, I don't read Arabic, but they will say there are none. And I would ask the question, well, are there grammatical errors in the Bible? Yeah, there are. In the sense that if a professor of Hebrew at the time of Moses was reading Moses' book, he would find, you know, grammatical issues. He would say, well, you know what, that's a whatever, uh, a split infinitive. But it doesn't matter because it's actually okay at times, pardon those of you that are grammarians, to write in such a way that's a little more sloppy, but to actually speak absolute truth. Now, the other thing is just by comparison. For instance, if you were to read New Testament Greek, um, you would find that certain parts of it are just more complicated and complex Greek than other parts. So when I uh, open the Greek Bible, I can sight read sections of it. Other parts I can't get through like two words. I got to immediately go to my tools, pull them off the shelf, and look up those funky endings and all this kind of stuff because it's just very complicated and complex Greek. Or the form of argumentation between the different writers. Keep in mind the Bible's written by like 40 writers. The Quran's written by one. So the Quran reads more flat, just as a book. 
whereas the, the, new, the new and Old Testaments read as more of a compendium of various authors. So the, 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 the writing style of, I use this example of the writer of uh, Hebrews, is very distinct than Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the writings of Paul. Now, because there's a few things that are said in Hebrews that sounds Pauline, a lot of people, well, I think Paul wrote Hebrews because everybody loves Paul. I think some Christians are almost guilty of worshiping the poor man. But the reality is if you read it and you become familiar with that writing style, it doesn't sound like Paul at all. It's, it's not about being better or worse than it. It's just different. It's like when you hear five different people preach, you could get just as much out of every sermon, but there's a different style to every preacher. Well, so there's different styles in the writing of the Bible. And some guys, frankly, are more grammatically accurate than others are. And that shouldn't rock your world that there may be split infinitives in the Bible. There's one chapter in the book of Genesis or the book of Romans that is obviously divided up into periods and commas in our translations. It's one Greek sentence, the entire chapter. It's just one run-on sentence. That's not good grammar. So we have to divide it into pieces in order to understand it. But in that situation, it was a perfectly acceptable way of communicating. So you could say to the to a Muslim, let's say you couldn't find a singular split infinitive in all of the Quran. So what? So what? That doesn't prove that it's supernaturally inspired. Another uh, argument that's often presented is Muhammad was illiterate and he's writing. Well, again, like where's the where's the evidence for that? Where's the evidence for that? And if he was illiterate, does that automatically cause us to conclude that he suddenly started writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God? I mean, could it, could it possibly be that there was some other spirit motivating him? It's just a good question to have. So it's just not an argument that proves anything, even though it, it would be very fascinating if he was, in fact, illiterate and was suddenly able to write. Jonathan? No. No, he wrote every last word of the Quran, but his followers wrote the hadiths. No, he wrote it down. Yeah. Right. Well, that might be true from a historical perspective, but that's not the claim of Islam. So what you're saying might be true, but that's not what Islam is claiming. One of the uh, check marks that they give to Muhammad is that this is a guy who's illiterate, receives a revelation, and is told to recite it, write it down. Now, it very well might be true that, in fact, he brought his friend Ted into the cave, who had grade 10 and wrote it. But we we don't know that because the claim is is that he was illiterate but wrote it down. The hadiths, however, were exclusively written by his followers. Yeah. If a person says like the Quran, being while like while flowing and stuff like that, you could understand that it's written by one person versus the Bible 
over one lifetime versus the Bible being written by however many people over several thousand years, and it still flows. It's more of a miracle than the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would agree with you that it makes it more of a substantive or interesting book at the very least. Again, we got to be careful in our arguments too. Like sometimes the arguments that uh, Christians use for why they believe the Bible to be true are, are like a bucket with a lot of holes in it. They don't hold a lot of water for very long. You know, they might get you 10 steps, but they, do, they are leaky. So I don't want to sort of rock your world, but I don't want you going out of here saying, well, the reason why I believe the Bible is true is because it's grammatically awesome. Okay, well, even if it was, who cares? It doesn't mean anything. Or while it is fascinating and I think true that the Bible is written by 40 writers, 66 books over, well, at least 1,000 years, probably 1,400 years or 1,500 years, and is uh, reads as more of a, pro, a progression of a discovery about God and his plan for our lives. That, that to me, just from a literary perspective, is far more fascinating than one guy whipping it out in 30 years in a cave by himself. It's more fascinating. But then someone could say, well, we're starting a religion and we're compiling 67 books by 41 writers. Gotcha. So ours is even better yet. Okay, well, you got us on that one. I'm no longer a Christian. So we just have to be careful about the argumentations that we use as well. Is the Quran really perfectly preserved? Uh, there's evidence from a lot of sources that there have been additions and deletions from the early Qurans, and there were actually debates about it. Uh, notably, the satanic verses, there's a couple individuals uh, supposedly daughters of a jinn or devil that are mentioned in Quran 50, which you won't find in later Qurans. Uh, there were uh, four early biographers, Islamic biographers of Muhammad's life that talked about these verses. And of course, out of that, you have Salman Rushdie's novel, fictional novel written about that. And... Um, you also have uh, variances in the hadiths or the commentaries on the Quran and Muz uh, uh, Muhammad's life that do differ. Now, <clears throat> it, uh, it's true that early Christian sources also record things differently. Uh, John records the life of Christ from a different angle than Luke, Luke from Mark, Mark from Matthew, but they record things from a different angle. They don't contradict or delete or subtract information uh, from one another. So they're not recording things differently, but certainly they're looking at the life of Christ from different angles. Now, a fatwa, by the way, spelled F-A-T-W-A, is a declaration by a Islamic religious authority or community calling for the assassination of someone who has blasphemed the prophet or God. And that was what was issued by the uh, leader of Iran, the Islamic leader of Iran, against Salman Rushdie when he wrote his book. And that's never been withdrawn. The interesting thing about Islam, by the way, this is just something I've always found fascinating, is uh, we, of course claim and believe that Jesus is God. 
So that puts Jesus on a completely different plane than Moses or Daniel or Joseph or Paul or Barnabas. So we, we claim that he's God, and so therefore it's consistent for us to say if you use Jesus' name vainly, that's actually blasphemy. But in Islam, it's interesting because Muslims don't claim that Muhammad was perfect through his entire life or that he was God. They just claim that he was the final prophet on par with Moses and Daniel and Joseph and Ezekiel and all these guys, right? But when you become a Muslim, you sort of have to swear allegiance to him and you can have a fatwa issued against you if you blaspheme him, but they don't issue fatwas if you're blaspheming Moses or Daniel or Paul or any of these other people. So while on a theological level they're saying, well, Muhammad's just the final of all the prophets, in, in reality, I would challenge a Muslim and say, it sounds to me like you're venerating him because you won't even allow me in your in your religion to criticize anything. It's like you're basically saying, we're going to criticize you, but if you criticize back, we're going to issue a fatwa. And how fair is that? And secondly, how can we have a conversation if that's always dangling over my head? So before we even, you might even, you know, in in an earlier conversation with a Muslim friend, ask that question. How can we have an intelligent conversation when I'm permitted to allow you to make, I'm going to allow you without threatening you to make allegations against the Injil, allegations against the Torah. I'm going to disagree with them. I'm going to rigorously debate you on these points. But I'm not going to threaten your life if you're going to say the Bible's been changed, uh, your Jesus isn't God, on and on and on, and we're going to have robust conversation. But as soon as I try try to have a conversation with you about Muhammad, it's like you're a dead man. That's not fair. And until you become flexible on that point, I don't know how we can really have a conversation. So I don't walk on eggshells around Muslims. I don't, I don't go around blaspheming Muhammad. But if they want to have a fair conversation, it has to be a fair conversation. And, and, and the gloves graciously have to be dropped, and we need people to, to talk about these issues. But if you think that all I'm going to let you do is criticize Christianity, and I'm not allowed to say anything, about the character, the historicity, or the claims of Muhammad, well, I, I might as well go and talk to a Buddhist because at least they're open to my critical analysis of Buddha. So I wouldn't be afraid. You want to be gracious, <clears throat> but I would encourage you not to be afraid of at least pointing that out. Don't start criticizing Muhammad before you point that out. But I wouldn't be afraid of pointing that out and challenging them at the very least to be a little more open to having a conversation about these matters. Well, obviously, Western Islam, it's not permissible. But in, in conservative Middle Eastern or Indian, uh, not Indian, Pakistani Islam, yeah, that, that would be issued, of course. Well, I don't know if anybody can do it. I would presume that it would have to come from some sort of a religious leader because those are the ones you hear about. There are many, many stories, especially in countries where Muslims and Christians, when I say Muslims, however you want to define that strand, and Christians, however you want to define that strand, 
where there's, there's, there's killings that go back and forth both ways because of this, where there's, there's slaughters back and forth. That's why we have India and Pakistan today, not so much because of Christianity and Islam, but because of Hinduism and Islam. You know, they're basically killing each other. We've got to create two countries. Oh yeah. Well, I think in, in particular they they won't allow it in certain Muslim countries. I don't know if the Windsor Mosque has issued a declaration to their members or not. They won't allow the the film to be shown specifically. I don't know if they would care or not. I I would they wouldn't be issuing a fatwa. Oh, I'm sure it would be the same as in a Christian church. I mean, you have Christian churches that anything goes. It's all up to you. It's all freedom in Jesus. It's just you and Jesus on an island. And uh, you know, it's all a personal relationship. There's no such thing as an interpersonal faith. Uh, and then there's churches that are the extreme the other way, where you know, you're going to give us Polaroids of your uh, Sunday best, and we have to sign off before you, uh, you know, are allowed onto the worship team. Or I was teaching over in Detroit, and uh, at a seminary, and I had a student of mine said every year, she I don't know what they call it in the U.S., some of you would know. She had to bring in the equivalent of her T4 to her pastor, and he would review it with her, and he'd say, okay, this is what your tithe is for the year. You give it back. So, I mean, that's uh, obviously a very controlling form of Christianity where... There's... there's there's more closed strands and brands of Islam and more open strands and brands of Islam. There's many, many strands and brands of Islam. The dominant ones are Sunni and Shia. But there's, there's the Druze. There's, there's dozens of offshoots. And then you also got to factor in the culture. So uh, just like in our evangelical churches... Okay, evangelicalism, if we just define that as, you know, Trinitarian, Bible's inerrant, Jesus is divine, uh, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is born of a virgin. The evangelical church is going to be slightly different in Canada than it is in Bulgaria, than it is in Venezuela, than it is in Somalia, right? It may hold to the core doctrine, but there may be different standards like in some places where you can't go to movies uh you can't drink alcohol uh you know you can't you know if you if you divorce there's absolutely no way you're ever remarrying anywhere anytime you know there's there's all different sort of applications of our faith and, and the same in islam depending on the degree to which a person is connected with their mosque and their community and, uh, and there's going to be 101 ways of slicing it Yeah, I think it's very similar to Christianity in that respect, and that you have, <clears throat> it's been around for so long, I mean, you have a real broad array of people claiming to be Muslims, just like you have a very broad array of people claiming to be Christians. I mean, those of us in this room, I'm, I, I think all of us here would say, well, I, I at least know one person that says they're a Christian, but I don't believe that they're a Christian. 
because, I mean, something's missing. Maybe they don't believe in Jesus or something, but they say they're a Christian. Or they have all the right beliefs, but they're living like an absolute reprobate. And I, sorry, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. There's, I just can't imagine this person is possibly born again. So the same within Islam. And I was in Morocco 20 years ago ministering. I had this guy that I was building a relationship with, and he would walk around the streets of Morocco with me holding my hand, which I found very culturally <laughs> awkward. But everyone else was doing it, so I guess it was normal. Walking on the street holding this dude's <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the mission strip. So I remember one day he's like, well, we gotta, we gotta go stay in this corner. And he didn't, like, why are we standing in this corner? I think I told somebody this. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm waiting for, uh, I don't know what he said, like waiting for a uh, delivery, I guess it was. What kind of a delivery? Well, it was, uh, drugs. And, uh, I sort of questioned him on this. I'm thinking, like, well, you're a Muslim. This is a very Muslim country, Morocco. And he said, well, I, he, he drank, he smoked, and he, he did drugs. But I, God forbid, I am absolutely Islamic. But he knows that that's contrary to Islam. So it's the same in Christianity where you have people that are smoking doobies on Saturday night and praising Jesus on Sunday morning, right? And you're like, there's some sort of a disconnect here. You know. So I can't speak for this, what actually goes on on a Friday night at the Windsor Mosque, but the point is, is there's a broad variety. So we're obviously looking at like more of the formal statements of Islam, and in Islam, this doctrine of fatwa is alive and well and expressed differently in different contexts. And then jihad. So there's actually a, a broad uh, array of... Um, Differences on jihad, different interpretations of jihad. However, I want you to pay attention to this, and you can come back to me and tell me if you think I'm wrong. While Muslims, some will say, jihad is not about killing people in the name of Islam, and others will say, yes, it is. What you'll notice is that the more moderate or liberal progressive, whatever you want to call it, forms of Islam, will rarely, if ever, and probably never in an official capacity, chastise those who hold to the more stringent positions. Because one of the interesting things about Islam, which Christians, which is a plus and a minus, I think, in Christianity, is they don't speak against each other, at least not around you. So, I've often said this. I mean, I know Muslims that disagreed with what took place at the World Trade Center, right? Then say it publicly. Put it in the newspaper. Say it on the radio. Say it out loud on the television. Publicly chastise it. And I think you'll put a lot of people at ease. But they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to, even if they disagree with one another, sort of stick together. And so one of the things, we talked a few weeks ago about not being afraid of Muslims, but I understand people's psyche. And I think one of the things that confuses people about Islam is that they don't hear places like the Windsor Mosque waving flags and standing up and speaking out against that kind of stuff, let's say in the Middle East or other places in the world. And if they did, then it would kind of put you at a little more, okay, there, there are different kinds of 
Muslims out there. So while it is true that Muslims practice their faith very differently, they they are supposed to sort of stick close together when it comes to putting on uh, a good face. So I have a friend who's Muslim, and I remember saying to him when I first met him, the Windsor Mosque, is it Shia or Sunni? He's like, oh, it's everything. Uh, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as denominations in Islam. I'm like, you're lying to me. Like, I know for a fact that that's not true. I know that's a, a Sunni mosque. There's not a Shia that's ever walked through the door of it. Why are you saying that? This is what I'm thinking, right? I just met the guy. I didn't say it. But I'm thinking, why, why don't you just tell me the truth? Because I don't have a problem with grace and when appropriate to criticize Christianity. Because I see that modeled in the Bible. By the, it is modeled in the Bible, by the way. Okay, like Paul was kind of critical of Peter. What, in that book called Galatians? Very critical of Peter. Another apostle criticized him in public. Threatened him with anathema in public. Okay, some people, you don't judge anybody. That means you never open your mouth and never speak truth. No, that's not what that means. Okay, so... Christianity can be overly critical. I understand that. I, you know, sometimes we Christians criticize other Christians for what I think are ridiculous things. But the idea of never speaking out against any strand or brand of Christianity expression, of course we do that. That's part of purifying our faith and keeping each other accountable for our actions. But you won't see that within Islam to that degree, at least not in an official capacity. So with regard to jihad, then you have different uh, uh, views like Christianity, Islam permits fighting in self-defense, at times in defense of religion or on the part of those who are expelled forcibly from their houses. It lays down strict rules of combat, which prohibits harming civilians, destroying crops, trees, livestock. As Muslims see it, injustice would be triumphant if the world of good men were not prepared to risk their lives in a righteous cause. The, the Quran says, fight in the cause of God unless those who fight you do not transgress limits. God does not love transgressors. In 861, if they seek peace, then uh, seek you peace. And trust in God, for he is the one that heareth and knoweth all things. War, therefore, is the last resort and is subject to the rigorous conditions laid down by the sacred law. The term jihad literally means struggle. And Muslims believe that there are two kinds of jihad. The other jihad is an inner struggle which everyone wages against egotistical desires for the sake of attaining inner peace. So obviously there's going to be uh, extremists that will fly planes into buildings and there's others that would never even think about doing that kind of thing because they have different interpretations about what jihad means. Now, the final doctrine that I want to introduce you to, which is probably the most frustrating, inconvenient doctrine in Islam, is taqiyah. This is a cue, by the way. Takiyah. Now, <clears throat> Katiyah, or Takiyah, sorry, is um, basically a doctrine of withholding the truth, or in some situations, lying. 
Now, there's sort of like a strict definition of it, but then there's different applications or expressions of it. So, for instance, originally, taqiyah was a doctrine whereby a Muslim, for instance, who was being persecuted was permitted to lie about their beliefs, about the nature of their faith in order to risk their own lives and not be held culpable before God. So let's just say, for instance, that the Sunnis and the Shia are coming together and they're clashing. And, you know, a, a Shia is cornered by a Sunni. He says, are you a Shia? Or, you know, he's got a sword, right? Are you a Shia or a Sunni? Ah, oh, I'm a Sunni. Okay, well, he's technically committed what's called taqiyya. He's lied. He's actually a Shia. But according to Islam, he's allowed to lie in order to protect his life. And the guy with the sword runs off and he lives another day. Um, or... Uh, another expression of this came about in uh, recording the Hadiths is when uh, Christian crusaders were forcibly converting Muslims or Muslims were forcibly converting Christians. It's gone back and forth over the centuries. But a uh, a Muslim family, for instance, could say, yep, we, we uh, are converting to Christianity. And let's say it was a political, a forced conversion, yet we're committing to Christianity, we're proclaiming the name of Jesus, we're even getting baptized. But in their hearts, they actually can still consider themselves Muslims. That would have been permissible, or that is permissible in Islam, to save your life, to lie, to, to fake a conversion. Now, obviously, when you get into issues of truth-telling, that's a little disturbing, but this doctrine of taqiyya has been applied in a much greater way than it was originally intended. So now you have Muslims, some Muslims, not all, that will actually misrepresent the nature of, Christi of, of Islam in order to lure you in. Okay? And I've actually had this pulled on me three or four times by one person in particular, and I challenged him on it at one point. And I used the word taqiyya, and was, oh, he didn't realize I knew it. So I challenged him in a, in a moment of honesty, and I said, I want you to ask your imam why you are allowed to misrepresent your faith in order to lure me in. So the reason why this is applicable, by the way, is if you're talking to a Muslim, you're saying, well, we, we have our, our hot-button issues. I want to know what you believe about jihad. Well, they can tell you, something that seems reasonable, but then you ask yourself, are you pulling a taqiyya on me here? Like, are you telling me the truth? Because you have this convenient little doctrine that says you can misrepresent. So I, I, I explained that to him. I said, sometimes in my conversations with you, I'm not quite sure whether you're telling me the truth about what you believe or whether you're putting a little bit of a spin on it because you want to lure me in. And it's kind of like, well, once he's... 10 steps into Islam, then we'll tell him the truth and, you know, he'll already be, the hook's already embedded and he's in, you know, he's in the door and it won't be as big of a deal. So he went and asked his uh, imam, because he was actually kind of in a moment of vulnerability, he's, okay, I'll ask him. And uh, he came back and a few days later, or a week later, I remember what it was, and I said, so what did he say? And he's like, oh, it was great. So what did he say? He's like, well, he just smiled and he put his hand on me. And he's quite an older man, the, fellow, the imam. He says, it's, it's like a both and, my son. And he's like, oh, that was just awesome. I'm like, that doesn't answer the question. <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. I still don't know what you believe. The point is, he was, again, avoiding 
giving an answer to that. So it, this is worth talking to Muslims about. Like, if we're going to have a conversation, and it's a legitimate conversation, are you going to pull some tequila on me? And secondly, can we actually talk openly about the claims that Muhammad makes, or are you going to pull a fatwa on me? <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious, you should ask those kinds of questions. You know, do it humorously if you can and be gracious. But just say there's a couple things about Islam that make it very difficult for me to have a meaningful conversation. And I need you to answer me. Like, how, how, how is this relationship going to go forward if there can't be openness and honesty uh, between ourselves, like ethical openness and honesty about truth? And uh, how can we have an open and honest conversation if you can criticize my claims, but I can't criticize your claims? So these are the kinds of things that I, I over the years, uh, you know, I, I talk to Muslims about. Obviously, uh, you know, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it is difficult to uh, convert Muslims because not only are you trying to convert them out of a religion, you're trying to convert them out of a culture. And, uh, you know, Islam, frankly, does a far better job at building community than Christianity does. Uh, you know, we meet together once a week if we've got it together. Most Christians come twice a month, maybe once a month. Some Christians apparently can get by meeting with their brothers and sisters in Christ 12 times a year. <clears throat> and in, in Islam, a good Muslim potentially could be at the mosque 35 times a week. So you, you build relationships. And uh, you get to know people. And you have these awesome meals together with shawarma and everything else. And don't underestimate the power of community to hold people to a faith and the power of a community, cultural, ethnic, right, all, all knotted up together to blind people to issues of truth. So it is, it's very difficult to sometimes see those conversions. And I know missionaries that I've talked to over the years have had the greatest amount of success with lonely Muslims, often single men that maybe their parents have died, they don't have brothers and sisters, they're live in a humdrum job, they're not married, because the culture and the community doesn't hold them as tightly as those that are really connected. So I would encourage you to build relationships with Muslims. Uh, I, wouldn't, I, would, I would encourage you not to be afraid of visiting the mosque. I mean, don't be in there worshiping Allah. But, uh, you know, having conversations with people, inviting them to your home, having a meal, being hospitable. Many of them come from cultures that are highly hospitable. And talking in openly and honestly about the claims of Christianity vis-a-vis -vis the claims of Islam. Julia? Yeah, in a different room. Yeah. Well, you can pray at home or pray on the job site if you can't go in, obviously. <coughs> There's two separate rooms. So when you go into the mosque, excuse me. <coughs> downstairs is kind of like a big fellowship hall of sorts and there's some offices on the right I'm talking about the one on, on Dominion and then you sort of go up some stairs and there's a uh, hard flooring and then there's carpeted flooring and you're not allowed to step on the carpeted flooring with your shoes on so you take your shoes off and off to the right there's a whole bunch of uh, baths so you you have to do ritual baths uh, if you're a Muslim and then there's no chairs so you, it's a big carpeted area, and it's facing Mecca. And you um, you pray in, in rows, probably like you've seen in postcards or movies. And then the women are uh, 
in a different room, kind of. Different mosques are set up differently. Like the the one in in London when I was in it, they have uh, the men and the women. Um, think now, I think in that one the men are out front and the women are actually behind in a different area. But you could actually, the women could see the men, but it's because they don't want the guys looking at the girls' butts when they're bent over praying, right? That's what they told me. No, like they'll they'll wash in certain ways as a ritual to it behind the ears, around the face. Uh, mouth, nose, eyes, uh, hands, feet. There's, there's different sequence of events. Yeah. So every time you're in the mosque, every person that goes in there would perform those ritual baths. Obviously, if you're running a bulldozer on a job site and one of the times of prayer comes up, you wouldn't be doing that, but you would whip out your mat and you'd pray towards Mecca. They're, they're, they're learning to evangelize in the West, but they don't evangelize in the Middle East because everyone is a Muslim, more or less. So it's kind of like in countries where everybody is some form of Christian. There's no, there's no real such thing as evangelism uh, because they just assume, well, if let's say 200 years ago, if you're Italian, you're a Catholic in Italy. So why would you be evangelizing? Everyone's baptized into the church. But in multicultural or multi-religious contexts like Canada, of course they do. I mean, the mosque is totally up to their game on, on Dominion. They're doing stuff. They have an outreach committee. I know they do. I get, I get paper uh, flyers in my, um, uh, well, my doorstep, I don't know, a mailbox, that says it's by the outreach committee. And I have a friend who's, who's on the outreach committee. And they also have a youth group and a youth outreach committee, and they do blood drives, and they give away free Qurans, and they... They hold debates between Christians and Muslims, and you know they, they try to do a number of things to to reach out into the community. They do tours. You can go in there for a tour. I've, I took uh, when I was teaching world religions at Maranath. I took my high school class through there, and they have like an um, they do all their funeral preparations in the mosque. So um, they don't embalm. There's a guy on on Dominion that makes simple caskets out of plywood and they have a, a, a team in the mosque that does all the body preparations. They have, I think, four or six places to hold bodies and I was talking to myself, can you imagine the bulletin? We're looking for people to join the uh, body preparation committee. Any volunteers? But they actually take courses on that and they, they have the full bed. They wash the corpse and wrap it and the, there's a group for men, men only prepare men and women only prepare the women's bodies and they, they do all of that right there. Was there a hand up in the back? Oh, Ben. <clears throat> oh, yeah. 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 I've actually heard that uh, with a lot of religions. And, <clears throat> you know, in some ways we do it too. Obviously your motive needs to be right, but if you support a compassion kid, you hope that kid gets fed, but also evangelized and they come to Christ. So it's it's not that you're buying the conversion, because ultimately you believe the conversion is of the Holy Spirit of God, but you're also a practical thinker, and you know that somehow God set up the systems of earth, whereas if you build relationships with people, or they're raised in a Christian family, they're exposed to Christianity, they're a whole lot more likely to become a Christian than if they're 
raised in some Papua New Guinean village or they've never heard of Christianity, right? So we try to position ourselves for evangelistic growth by feeding the poor and, and, and the widow and the orphan and, and all that kind of stuff. But I have heard stories, and, and perhaps perhaps Christianity historically has been guilty of this too, where they literally buy conversions. Uh, now, the Muslim tithing rate is far less than Christianity, as we talked about. It's 25 to 3%. But uh, they uh, they also tend to pool their money more. So if you, there's, there are different quote-unquote denominations within uh, Islam, but it's not, it's certainly nowhere near as fragmented as Protestantism, for instance. I mean, Protestantism is so fragmented that you can, your head spins, you try to keep track of the names of different denominations or associations or, or groups around the world. There's just so many of them. So. Okay, well, let's take our break and... Uh, we're, we're a little over time, so let's just take seven or eight minutes, and then uh, we'll come back together and talk a little bit about the Jehovah's Witnesses.